Tala for Lava and welcome to the Global Bus Figure Success Podcast. I'm Andrew Fa'avali, your host. Every week I'll be chatting with successful Pacific people from across the globe, unpacking their stories and more importantly, picking out insights, lessons and golden nuggets you can use to live your best life too. Hello, Lee, everyone. I uh, hope you're enjoying your week so far. hope you enjoyed my chat too with uh, Dr. Seotu Alefayo Tungia, psychologist and academic whose chat about her work in culturally responsive practice was so insightful and encouraging and a really important body of work to give another platform for. Heaps of awesome feedback from around the world, so thanks for emailing and messaging through. Um, in terms of Seltu's work, there's all sorts of technical ways to describe it and academic terms, I guess. But for me, um, simply put, the way she works is effective and impactful because she is simply respectful, inclusive and validating of Pacific worldviews and knowledge systems. It's that simple. And she's done that across psychology, community recovery and engagement, mental health, learning and teaching and many other fields. Um, so thanks again, Dr. Seltu, for everything that you are and everything that you do. Uh, such a cool, laid back and humor filled chat with heaps of knowledge bombs dropping all the way through. If you haven't listened to it, go back and check it out. And while you're there, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast to be kept up to date. And don't forget to check out our Facebook, Insta and Twitter pages. Just search Global Pacifica Success Podcast. All right, this week we've got um, someone who's seemingly done it all, a young woman who has an honours and master's degree in Pacific history, who's a writer, so she has academic publications, she's written columns for magazines and newspapers, and also is a creative writer and poet with um, two poetry collections already published. In fact, in 2013, she received the Fulbright Creative New Zealand Pacific Writers Residency at the University of Hawaii in Manoa, um, and she's a former diplomat, she was posted out to Tonga for MFAT for two years and uh, has even run for government in the 2017 elections in New Zealand. Currently, she's the manager of Pacific po- Policy at the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. And on top of all that, um, she's a mother and a wife to her husband, Shane. And she's not even 40. Man, what the heck, I feel like a loser. <laughs> Um, anyway, I used to read her articles in the newspaper and um, in Metro magazine and um, also read lots of her poetry as well, which I found really raw, honest and brave. I've always loved her insights. She intertwined so many different uh, threads and themes into her writing in the magazines and journals, etc. But a lot of her poetry and writings reflect on her youth and surviving and thriving beyond abuse. Um, the titles of some of these poems give a hint into the substance of them. Titles such as Aotearoa Runaway, My Sister and I, and Stepfather Number Two. But I think the thing that really shines through this Talanoa with Leilani is her commitment to be true to herself and to others for our collective and greater good. And the thread that weaves through all of her accomplishments and roles is that of service. Okay, let's get into it. We jump in with Leilani providing some context around her name, her family, and who she is. My full name is Leilani Leofaitulangi Tamu. Uh, Leofaitulangi is my grandmother's name. My nana, who only passed away three years ago, was very dear to me. She was my beloved. I am the eldest grandchild and the eldest child of the eldest child. <laughs> so as you can imagine, and as any someone would know, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> and being my nana's namesake, even more so, especially being a name like Lea Faitunangi, my nana was named after her auntie, Lea Faitunangi, who's very well known in Samoa. Uh, she was an amazing woman herself. So I guess our family name carries a lot of mana. Um, my nana um, was born in the village of Leone in, uh, on the island of Tutuila. So I'm an American Samoa girl. Woo! <laughs> a little bit unusual, you know, for uh, growing up in Aotearoa. My papa, Iri, who was my nana's uh, husband, he was an Afakasi boy. He was one of those um, young, blue-eyed, suave <laughs> Afakasi boys um, who grew up in Apia. He went to the Maris Brothers School and our family um, had a shop on the waterfront in Apia, the Older Harbour Shop, which is where the John Williams building is now. And my papa's ancestry connects him to a few places. Um, He has connections to Tonga uh, on his mother's side, specifically to Hapai. And 
on his father's side, we think there's Scottish and German and all sorts of other European connections. So that's my mum's parents. And then my dad, Bill, he was Balangi. And my dad uh, passed away when I was 17, but he was a really big inspiration in my life. And he had a big heart for Pacific communities as well, even though he was Balangi. So, yeah, that's me. Cool. Thanks for that. So um, who migrated from the islands on your mum's side? They all came in 1965. They came on the Tōpua. You know, the famous, it was either the Tōpua or the Matua. Uh, My mum was nine and she was, as I said before, she's the eldest out of six. So a lot of responsibility rested on her shoulders at nine. They arrived here and they stayed with my auntie and uncle, Eleanor and Cyril Curry. Yeah, so the Curry family took care of us. And then my grandpa was lucky because his father helped him with getting a mortgage. So we were able to get our first home, which we still live in, here in Sandringham. Ah, that's awesome. So I just want to pick up on the point that your mum was the eldest and you're now the eldest of the grandchildren. Uh, That pressure, how how does it manifest in the life of a young (laughs) Samoan woman? Oh, so many ways. I think um, at the end of the day, it's all about tautua, it's about service. And so my mum, like really for her siblings, but also for us, is like she just personifies service and everything she does. Oh, sorry, getting a bit teary. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I love my mum so much. Um, my mum's had a hard life. My parents split when I was quite young. So, you know, especially I think being the eldest daughter in a someone Catholic family, I should yeah. say. So, you know, additional pressure, you know, it was really hard for my mum and my grandparents helped bring my sister and I up. And then, you know, just there was a man in my mum's life later who wasn't that good either. So my mum's a real survivor. Um, but my grandparents, like it's interesting because that Tautua, you know, relationality. For me, it's two-way because it wasn't just about my mum giving in love and service for her parents and for her ainga. It was actually also about the way in which our family wrapped that love around each other through service. So, yeah, we couldn't have survived if it wasn't for my grandparents too. Yeah, so obviously the early wave of migration and um, ended up in central Auckland. I was just talking to my mum. My mum's just recently moved here to Brisbane and uh, we were just reflecting that the 80s was a tough time for Samoan wives and, and also families. For me, as I was growing up, there were heaps... I just looked around my family and it was kind of like, man, there's like heaps of domestic violence and there were heaps of people try, trying to deal with alcoholism and stuff like that, all, all those really challenging social issues that we have. But I think that the next generation have kind of come out. How do you kind of see the next generation after the 80s uh, period? Yeah, like uh, I I so hear you. I think that 80s time was really hard for us too, especially here because the way I see it is it's almost like it was like the post-traumatic shock after the dawn raids in the 70s and the Muldoon era and then with all the economic contractions that affected us and so I do think the 80s were really hard and I think the 90s for us were a time when we were trying to push through trying to rebuild as communities but of course then as you know in New Zealand then there were the big like social services cuts and especially to the benefit system which really impacted us as well um for me like when I think about that time of the 90s it was a lot of like hopefulness but also there was fear there I think it was the way the world was kind of you know I remember stuff around the hole in the ozone you know layer (laughs) and in the Iraq war and you just kind of just had constantly felt like you just had to keep going you know like keep pushing through but what if um yeah so that's kind of my take on the that time and in our lives so did you go to school in central Auckland yeah, so um, my my grandfather, he was um, with, and I mean this with utmost respect. He was more Catholic than Catholic. <laughs> like <laughs> he, uh, so when my mum and her siblings were here, they all had to go to the mainstream schools because my my grandparents couldn't afford to put them to, into the Catholic schools, or they were a little bit further away. But when it got to my sister and I, my grandfather was really insistent we went to Catholic schools. So we went to Marist Primary in Mount Albert, and then we went to St. Mary's College in Ponsonby. Oh, yeah. Um, 
I'm not a Catholic anymore. I have to declare that. I'm still a Christian. I'm just not a Catholic. Yeah, so <laughs> what was it like growing up in central Auckland? Because around that time, that was kind of the hub, and then we obviously did the, the migration out to the outer suburbs of Auckland. Especially as an Afakasi, how, what was the identity journey for you in central Auckland and going through those schools? Because the schools wouldn't have had that higher population as they do now in terms of Pacifica students, right? Yeah, like it's interesting, I think, particularly the Pacifica Catholic communities, although we're small, we tend to be quite tight-knit. Mm. Um, so like at my uh, at the church we attended, St. Mary's Mount Albert, there was a really, particularly a really strong Tongan Catholic congregation. And when I actually, actually, when I think about it, when I went to St. Mary's, it was actually, there was a really strong Tongan Catholic uh, community there too. They actually came from Marist Hermbe in particular. And a lot of the Samoan Catholics, like my friends, tended to come from East Auckland or South and they would commute into the city. It was hard. You know, one of the hardest memories I have when I think about St. Mary's was um, we got the opportunity to take part in Polyfest. And yeah. I think I was like, maybe 14 or something and it was so cool you know like we we put all out all into it and we actually came third on the Samoan stage which really? anyone will tell you is like wow especially for a small school like St Mary's yeah. that most people haven't heard of um so we came third but then it was like this shadow got cast because at that time um when we had our fear fear night one of the teachers made a complaint about some of our parents chewing gum and so it became this really awful thing where a finger was being pointed at our whole community for, I guess, what they were saying was a behavior they didn't condone. And then this, it all just played out in this really perverse way where they stopped us going into the polyfest in future years. It was awful. What? Um, yeah. So, and like, you know, no. I just think about it now, like nowadays that would not be tolerated. And I know that school has come a long way since but yeah, and like, you know, but then I saw things like when I think about it now, like the Irish dancing crew and like the other cultural groups, like they just never really got like that level of scrutiny. But I remember that feeling of, whoa, this is wrong and that we had really been ostracized at that time. Yeah, it's funny that you can still remember it and, you know, that it's still, and I'm sure it's one of the motivating factors as to why you're in the in the role you're doing now. Um that that polyfest seems to be an institution, eh? Because the last person I was talking to, they're like, "Yeah, we made it to the polyfest, but we were non-comp." And uh, at, back in my days, I went to Auckland Grammar, and we only had two lines, all screaming at the top of our lungs, and no one at the back could hear. And you know, it just seemed to be like a, a rite of passage, I guess, and something that was really great from our upbringing. Um, at school, was this where your poetry and creativity was fostered and nurtured, or was it more at home? Um. I think my creativity comes from both my parents. My dad was, my dad was, he was actually like a commentator. So he like, uh, he was a, he was an orator. He was a natural orator, my, my dad. So um, in that respect came from him. But from my mum, it was reading. Like my mum, since I was, as long as I can remember, my mum would read books to us, just like honestly, like books, books, books. Like, um, so yeah, for me, all my creativity comes back to reading first and foremost. And then I think at school, though, it was actually funny because actually my whole thing around why I do what I do with my creativity is because I saw at school that they weren't teaching us Pacific literature. They weren't telling us the stories that about our region or from our ancestors. And so I wanted to challenge that, which is why I started to write. Yeah, that's awesome. So what kind of books was your mum reading to you? Oh, she would read everything, anything under the sun, to be honest. And like one, like if I close my eyes, like one of my happiest, like, like memories is just my mum's voice and like just me falling asleep to the sound of her voice reading books and um the other thing is she kept all the books so like now I'm like I'm about to be 30 I think I'm yeah I'm about to be 39 um and so I have all those books and so they're just like a lot of them are um about creatures and magical lands and so very fantastical quite imaginative 
usually they would have like a beautiful proverb or message behind them. And, and um, did you get into, so you started off reading and did you get into writing poetry early on as a, as a means to reflect? Or no, no. Um, my poetry didn't start till later. And that was, um, I was in my 20s and I managed to enroll in one of Albert Wentz's classes oh. before he left the University of Auckland. So I feel so grateful for that. Um, so I took a paper that Albert and Witi Himaira were running and Al was actually my, uh, I got to be in his tutorial classes, which is so cool. And honestly, Al has the best sense of humor, like, and the best laugh. Like, he's got the driest laugh. It's just like, you'll be sitting there as a student and you're taking notes and you're like, is he serious? Should I put that down? <laughs> but one of the things, like, that really, I just, it really influenced me was he talked about the power of poetry and how it was such a great mechanism for being able to speak truth to power and to be able to break the English language up into ways that we could reframe and emancipate our ideas, you know, still speaking English, but on our terms. So it was actually Al who influenced me. And then I thought, oh, this poetry thing, and you know, maybe I should give it a go. So I just wrote, and then I think I got some poetry published in a book called New Voices. And then once that got published, I just built my confidence from there, kept going. Awesome. So what were you studying at university? I started studying education because I got a teaching Z scholarship. But after a year and a half, I really liked the papers, like the critical thinking, and especially in terms of understanding Māori experience in this country around education. But in terms of going to the classroom, I was like, oh, I don't think I'm ready for this. And I think I was like maybe 18, 19 at that time. And I just knew, like, I just was not, I wasn't ready. I couldn't control the kids. So I changed to a history degree. And then I decided to specialise in Pacific history Again, because I could see that there was hardly any Pacific history being taught or written. So I pursued that. And then um, after I finished the BA, I was like, oh, I don't know what to do. So I thought I'd do honours. So I did my honours and um, I started researching this random German doctor called Dr. Funk, who used to live in Samoa in about 1890s. Um, And he was like this real eccentric dude. And it got me more and more into like, well, what was this? (laughs) What was actually going on in the islands in the 1890s? And so then I thought, oh, maybe I'll do the master's. So I did my master's degree and I wrote a history of Apia, kind of looked at about 1880 through to about 1900, so just before annexation. What was Dr. Funk doing in Samoa? Oh, my gosh. So he headed off to Samoa. He arrived about 1879, and he was working for a big German uh, copper company, DHPG. So he was a medical officer. But he also, like, he used to, like, be really interested in uh, meteorology and rainfall. So he used to go up to Lake Lanotoo, and he had a little hut there. And so he would, like, run tours up and down and measure rainfall and tell people about how it was better for your health if you, you know, could be up elevated. Mm. And then he would do stuff like he did the worst thing. He got in so much trouble. He introduced the goldfish that are in Lake Lanotoo to this day. (laughs) They're still there. (laughs) Um, And he got in really big trouble from the German government because they were all about protecting the environment. So he he actually got fired from his job. Um, And he also was famous because he looked after Robert Louis Stevenson. He was his doctor. And he he was married to the daughter of a pirate first, and she divorced him, um, Lenora Hayes. She actually moved to Aussie um, to get away from him. He used to have a monkey. And the other thing is he married a beautiful woman in the end, a woman called uh, Sinitima. And uh, they never had children, but she was from Eva and Savai. Ah, it's so cool to you know to know what goes on back there. You know, I wasn't a big fan of history back at school, but man, now as I'm getting older, my history is getting longer because <laughs> my time is <laughs> ticking I over. Hear you. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> but you know, in your masters, what was that around? Are there any cool stories that might jump out at you, or what were the ones that jumped out to you at that time? Oh, the main thing for me about the Masters was Damon Salesa was a couple of years ahead of me and we had the same supervisor. So uh, to be honest, like 
Damon was a really big influence and I kind of riffed off where he was going because I loved the way he was thinking about the Afkasi communities and like how was like Damon was really looking at power and control in relation to Afkasi identity in Samoa and how it played out and that that's really what his master's was about so when I got into my space I wanted to go there but I was kind of more interested in how the different foreign populations in Apia in particular, they tried to control each other. So kind of between the, particularly the Germans, the Americans and the British, they had all these rules that they were trying to enforce. And like, so stuff like you weren't allowed to swim in the Baisingang or naked, <laughs> you know, and if you were European and <laughs> and like you would get fined and it would be published in the paper. Um, so I was really interested in kind of like the whole idea of, I guess, if you think about empire and imperial nations and then these Europeans living in our islands and how they then tried to like be more European than European in their <laughs> behaviour. Yeah. And, yeah, it was really quirky and they would have things like play polo and have picnics and have walls. And so I just wanted to get into some of that stuff. So that's sort of what I looked at. It was really about power and control, but through social behavior. Yeah, because Damon was on the show, uh, second up he was he was on, and he was talking about cricket and how, you know, if cricket was kind of uh, accessible to all, we would have smashed it. You know, one of our best cricketers is Samoa and Ross, uh, Ross Taylor. And he was saying that they actually blocked us out through power and control. But if we had been given equal access, just like rugby has given equal access, that's why we're so successful in it. Um, that power and control, I kind of see it as well. If you travel overseas, people want to be more Kiwi than Kiwi. And people who don't usually wear bones or get tamoko and stuff, they, they wear it overseas in London and places like that. What what's happening nowadays though in terms of Afakasi identity? Because you know, on the show we've had Damon, we've had Alex Fala, uh, was a couple of weeks ago, and now yourself. So just in terms of Afakasi identity, how's what's that journey like for you? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. It's been probably, if I'm honest, it's been a hard space. So it's been a contested space, I think, in terms of being. I mean, so there's two things for me. So there's one is being from an Afakasi family. And then the other is obviously being fair-skinned and being really conscious of, like, my white skin privilege. And I think, you know, yeah, lots of us navigate the space in different ways, and I think it's an evolving journey. Um, but where I sit now is all about how do I repurpose that power and privilege that comes with my own ancestry, and we all have that to different degrees, but also my white skin privilege. And how do I actually channel that back to where it needs to be for all of us in our communities? Uh, for me, I just hold space. I mean, my nana used to life, she'd be the first to tell you I was the black sheep because <laughs> <laughs> I was always the one who I just, I've always been quite opinionated and also read, probably take a lot after my dad in this way always stand up for the underdog, always really fight for what's right. Mm. And so in my family, as I was saying, you know, I got that sort of like Afakasi, Samoan, Catholic. My grandfather was really particular. Like, I mean, he was, in some ways, he was like more German than German, you know, <laughs> from his like kind of like German Samoan heritage background and Tongan and Scottish. He was so particular and I'm not that but I like to think that in some ways, because I am who I am, that my family has come on its own journey in terms of starting to recognise its own privilege. Yeah, that's really kind. That's really fair. It's really self-reflective as well. So when you're talking about repurposing it, what ways are you, like, obviously in these roles that you're holding, but I just need to ask the question, can you just tell us a bit more about that work where you're uh, repurposing or redirecting that? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So when I first, like, I guess, um, you know, when I first stepped into leadership mm. in, in a formal way, you know, like for me, it was really about putting myself in spaces where I knew I could speak and say things that would make other people feel uh, maybe uncomfortable, right? Like, you know, I'll be the first to be in a meeting and say, actually, I don't feel uncomfortable. I don't feel comfortable with that. That's racist. Oh, really? You know? That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> no, really, like, you know, I mean, honestly, you ask any of my colleagues, ask my team. Um, so I hold my space, you know, and I, 
I know that there are times when I, I can and I will say things, especially because I have formal leadership now, right? Like because I'm a manager in quite a big, powerful organization, I have some responsibility on my part to to, to name it mm. and to also call it out. So, uh, and my organization respects that too. So like, okay, last year, our graduate program, policy graduate program, I got asked by accident, it was random, I, by accident, I got asked to a meeting and then they were like, oh, you're not supposed to be here. And I was like, oh, what is this? And then it turned out it was the moderating uh, meeting for a particular, for the policy recruitment. And I was like, oh, well, how do you guys make sure that, that your representative, because I was looking around and I was like, <laughs> I can't see any Pacifica or Maori. And I was like, mm. and they, you know, you could see the shock on their faces and so this year, you know, like less than 12 months later, they came to see me and they were like, Leilani, we, we actually want to make a change. How do we do that? Can you put us in touch with the right people? And so now it's become status quo that actually everyone does the cultural competency awesome. training, that yeah. the moderation panel has to be representative. And yeah, I think people are starting to get, we're not going to just sit back and like accept that as normal anymore mm. but it takes someone like I guess me in those positions to be brave and to put my own reputation and you know you can call it brand whatever on the line but I don't really care about myself I care about others and mm. I care about bringing others up and I will judge you know I want I will judge my um success as a leader at the end of my career on the number of other leaders who actually had are now you know in executive roles Mm. And all the spaces that I have helped get there, and like that, hopefully I'll get to go and work for some of them one day. Awesome, that's awesome. So I just want to talk about this because um, trying to bring people around to to understand their own bias. Uh, you know, often culture is kind of a divisive thing, and people are really sensitive already. So what's the best way to bring people around? Because you know, often when you bring it up. Most times I think they're ignorant and when it's on purpose, they're racist. But when they're ignorant, they can get defensive. But how do we bring them along on a journey to say, okay, that's just that you don't know what you don't know. This is actually what's happening here. So this is a better way to do it. You need more representation on this board or you need, you know, more diversity here. How, what's the what's kind of some learnings for you in that journey? So the big thing for me is it's not about diversity, it's about inclusion first. Mm. So, you know, like, I, and I was just at something before where I just said this, you know, like, gone are the days of the tick box diversity, the tokenism. That's not going to get us the change. And that's not what we want either is our communities, actually, because it's actually about making space for us. You know, so like if I'm looking at an executive leadership team or I'm looking at a board table and all I see are basically Pākehā, Balangi, and there's none of us there, then how on earth is that ever going to serve our communities? And I'm not going to put up with them telling me that we don't have the right capabilities or that there oh, aren't okay. enough of us or that yeah. they couldn't find us. Because actually if they turn around and they have a look at how they went through their shortlisting process, they're going to start to uncover that actually at a systemic level, there's a whole lot of self-replication going on that they are willfully blind to and so that for me is the key thing because you know like ignorance actually is racism like it's it's actually like you know there's this cognitive dissident dissonance it's a choice that people make to actually enable and create the conditions that keep us excluded mm. And so I guess for me, yeah, part of my drive to be on those tables and to make sure I'm there is because I know that it's the only way that I can actually create space for others. Another thing too, I would say, especially being the manager of a Pasifika team in a mainstream organization, is we have really, we create safe space for each other in that, but we also have really honest conversations with each other yeah. because we know that we have to be better than better we know we have to be faster. We know we have to be more agile. And so it's also about making sure that we're keeping it a safe space, but we're also being honest with each other when we're not doing what we need to do to collectively lift our game. So how do you foster that in your team, that brutal honesty that's all about excellence? So I, I think the key thing for me is to make it not brutal. Right. So <laughs> so it's about honesty, but with al alofa. Mm. So, um, and that's exactly how we would, I guess, 
we gift that feedback. You know, I will say, this is, I'm going to give you a gift now. I'm going to give you some feedback because when you do that, you actually let us down. But also more importantly, you let yourself down. It doesn't reflect well on you. Mm. And, you know, that's not good for any of us. So let's actually work together to get that shift. And so it's like not uh, not beating around the bush, you know, like, but, but also saying, you know, saying it with aloha and with love and also being there to walk the journey. And honestly, anyone who knows me will tell you that I like go all and I'm quite generous. Some people, my boss's feedback actually to me was that I possibly am so giving of my heart that there are people who are undeserving because I keep giving and giving and giving. <laughs> My husband will probably tell you that too. <laughs> and that's that you know that's servant leadership, isn't it? To to a T. Um, you know, I, I think yeah, it's my mum. I think it must be my mum. <laughs> What's your mum doing now? Uh, she's a manager, a senior manager at Sky City. She's in charge of um, security. So, you know, I'm like amazing, you know, a strong woman, a strong Pacifica woman in a like male dominated industry. Before that, she had a 20 year career in the police. She was oh. one of the first Samoan uh, women in the New Zealand police. Sweet. Um, yeah. So, so your master's, you finished your master's. What did you do when you came out of uni? Oh, <laughs> like every other student, I had no idea what I was yeah, going to do. Um, but Carmel Cipolloni at that time was at uh, Auckland Uni with me. And she said, um, she got an email from Foreign Affairs. So she said, oh, hey, have you thought about this? I was like, oh, I haven't even heard of them. What's that MFAT, this MFAT thing? So um, she flicked it to me. And then I thought, okay, I haven't got anything else lined up. So I applied. And I got in. I think I was uh, one out of 25. Um, and they, it's quite competitive. So they have a lot of applicants. Um, yeah, so I was one out. I was the only Pacifica out of 25. So and good. there was one other person who came, but he was more senior than me. So it's kind of like a slightly different level. So, and you were posted to Tonga. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I, I, I was so weird. When I first started with the MFAT, I said to them, my heart is, is everything, anything to do with the Pacific. Send me to the Pacific, please. Anywhere, Kiribati, Papua New Guinea, I don't mind. Like, yeah. I really, really want to work for my community. And I really want the opportunity to work in our region. And um, then they put me on the Mexico desk. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, listen, what? I don't speak <laughs> and the HR person, I remember, she said to me on the phone, oh, no, it's just um, we have a policy that um, we like everybody to be generalists and not too specialists. It's like, oh, yeah, that might be your policy, but that's not what I want for yeah. my career. <laughs> um, so I think I did like six or seven months on the Mexico Jeeps, and the best thing was a tequila because I'm Mexican <laughs> ambassador <laughs> held events. Um but then uh, I said to them, look, I just have to find a way into Pacific work where I'm going to leave. Like, it's just, wow, you know, that's man. me. And so then the opportunity came up for me to go to Australia and I worked for the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs in their Pacific team for about 10 months. So it was like a secondment, which was interesting because I got to see how Australia looks at the Pacific, which is a whole nother podcast, trust me. <laughs> and then... Um, my husband, because Shane's from Nui, and we talked about, okay, what postings? And so Tonga came up and we were like, oh, that would be awesome. That would be just the best on so many fronts. Um, you know, because Tonga is like, it's such a fascinating culture and history, but it's also like kind of in between, you know, in lots of ways the culture is between Samoa and Nguyen. Yeah. So it was a good compromise for us to be like, yeah, let's try Tonga. So what was the highlight from Tonga those Tonga days? Well, my friends, yeah, there's just some amazing people that, like, I just, yeah, I really, I miss my friends from Tonga. Just really, really, really good people. Um, oh, my, oh, my gosh, honestly, like, Tonga for me is just, like, my heart. Like, it's just the most beautiful, like, culture. And just, I just love how Tongans just embrace you. Like, they don't, yeah. They just take you for who you are. As long as you're yourself and you're deeply respectful, you mm. know, like, 
oh, it's just, yeah, it was the best. Um, and so we were there for about two years. But the big conflict for me about being there was because I was with MFAT and the High Commission, and I just felt like for me in a values perspective, I was like, you know, like actually I'm living like a lifestyle that's really privileged and it doesn't fit well with actually what I see here in terms of what the community experiences are, especially in places like Bātangata, which is just down from the High Commission compound. And I was like, you know, we live in like extreme wealth and, you know, you've got families that don't even have power or water. Um, it just didn't feel right. And so I had to get to a point where I was like, actually, I need to start carving a path here that's in line with my values so where did you pivot to from there? Well, I quit, which was the big uh, pivot. Um, my husband was like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was the right decision. So we came back to Auckland, which was good to be closer to Nana and his Nana too, which I, well, you know, to this day was the best decision in that respect. And so I sort of became more and more political um, I joined Labour initially and worked for Carmel as her advisor for a while. I wrote for Metro magazine. I wrote real fiery opinion pieces. Um, I did consultancy work for Dr. Debbie Ryan, research and evaluation, which paid my way. Um, and around this time was when we had our son. So we have two children. Cool. Um, and then I kind of got to a point where I realized labor wasn't quite left enough for me <laughs> at that point. So I was like, oh, and I had to make a hard decision. And so I went to the Greens because I am an environmentalist as well as a social activist type leaning person. Uh, so, yeah, I ran for the Green Party in New Zealand in 2017. But my nana passed away in the middle of the campaign. Uh, and so, as you can imagine, like it just was like everything for me just broke, like everything in my life. Just like it's like I almost see like a twig and it just all snapped. It's just like there's just nothing after she passed. Like it's just like months and weeks of blackness. And um, I like kind of got got my way through to election day. I did what I needed to do. But after the election, I just knew I was done with politics. Like I was just like, I'm done with it. And I needed to grieve. And so I probably took about maybe, I don't know, three or four months where I just was so unwell and I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. And my mum and my husband and my sister and my kids and everybody just carried me through um, and then kind of the last, because it hasn't actually been that long now that I think about it, um, the last probably two, three years um, since then, I like have just been, I guess, reconstructing in my life and my path. And it's for me, it's now it's not about me. It's actually, um, if anything, I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about others. And I, I try to, as I was saying before, you know, I try to lead through service, but I also try to lead from the back and just give what I can and give my heart to everything I do. And that's enough for me. Yeah. So, so all through this time, you've been a working mother and the kids, I'm assuming, went across to Tonga or at least one of them? Uh, yeah. Kalei, our elder. So she's 10 now. Uh, so I was 28 when we had Kalei. Um, so she was six weeks old when we <sighs> went up to Tonga and I, I started work about four weeks later so yeah you can see I do it hard like <laughs> I always go for the hard options um <laughs> but my husband Shane as I said he's just amazing strong supportive man and so he he was a stay-at-home dad for that two years we were in so, Tonga and of course Tonga is like a nurturing place it's such an amazing place to have little ones so and as I said we lived in the compound so you know it was really nice house and stuff so just really grateful. Like God's really blessed us with a lot of things that I'm just so grateful for. And Shane was amazing as a stay-at-home dad, but I think he also realized that actually he needed his own career. Mm. And so when we came back to Auckland, and I was going through my crazy political stuff, um, he started um, his journey. And so he joined the New Zealand police. So he's oh, been awesome. a police officer now for six years. 
Ah, that's awesome. So just for the, you know, working moms out there who are listening, how did you how do you juggle all the responsibilities of being a leader or being, you know, in the political realm uh, and and taking your career where it's gone, being creative as well as raising raising kids? What are some of the tools for that success? I've thought about this a lot over the years because honestly, like if you so if you diagnosed my formula, most people would go, that's insanity. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but the truth is, if I was to say like the absolute ingredient that is consistent right throughout is sheer determination, sheer de- like I mean like I've probably got the kind of steely determination that would make my nails bleed, you know, like yeah, that kind of like really, like if I'm really honest, I'm pretty determined. And I also have extreme work effort, sometimes too much, like, you know, I, I'd be the first to admit it, like to my own detriment. Yeah. So those two things are like really how I've done all those things to here. But now I'm like, I'm fully about, oh my gosh, like my 200% is, you know, most people's like whatever equivalent of, you know, like it's all relative. So I'm just like, I'm just going to try and wind myself down to 50% and sit there now because that's enough. Because I'd like to enjoy the rest of my life. Yeah, because thirty-eight, and you've uh, achieved all that stuff. You know what I mean? And they're all—they're all connected. There's a thread that goes through them all, but they're all kind of really. There's creativity. There's uh, posting in Tonga, taking the Mexico desk. There's a politics campaign, and now you're leading an MBIE. Oh no! I went to Hawaii when I was three months pregnant with my son, and did a Fulbright. Yeah, that's right. Which was a bit crazy too. So where did this determination come from and where did this hard work ethic come from? Where was that fostered? I think the hard work ethic is definitely my family. That's my grandfather's, you know, thing. Like the older harvers are really, really hard working. Like, yeah, really hard working. So that's definitely um, mum's side and my papa in particular. Uh, The determination... If I'm really honest, I've been doing a lot of work lately and um, I actually have an article that I've just written, which is about, it's really like, oh my gosh, my complete vulnerability coming out. But I suffered quite a lot of abuse when I was um, between the age of five and eight um, from a boyfriend of my mother's. And I've just gotten to a point in my life where I can name that and and as I say, I've written about it for the first time. And I've started to see that actually that has been really sitting under a lot of what I would describe as like, I've almost from about that age just wanted to be like so fast no one could ever catch me yeah. and and able to always be 10 steps ahead and outwit and out strategize and so in some ways it's really weird because it's like this really really bad thing that happened that had all sorts of personal consequences but the one thing that's come out of it I think is this sheer determination to survive and to be better than better and I do think it came from there. Okay so the uh, really sorry to hear that first the ability to ramp down, is it because you've been able to name it? I think so. I think so. And it's like what, like when you read the piece, you'll see like what I've finally been able to say is like actually there's there's this thing that I think all of us have, regardless of what life's thrown at us, which is about living with shame Mm. and however shame and its different ways is kind of like played out and shaping us as people and the way we behave and I think for me, this shame has been something I've been afraid of. And so it's been more, made me more determined to be, this is weird, but like to be even better than the person who I think could be better, you know, like just to keep being this thing. But actually what it, where I finally landed is I'm like, actually, I'm not afraid of it anymore and I'm going to name it and, um, and see it and start doing the work of healing to just be with me mm. in all my imperfection. 
Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate your vulnerability. And I've kind of seen it also through your poetry. Um, the Aotearoa Runaway poem really speaks volumes and I'm only making assumptions as, you know, and making sense of it in my own mind. But just the ability to be vulnerable and to be honest and to be truthful in your writing or even in, in, in conversation is something of a strength. Is that how you see it? Um. I think other people see it. I'm sorry, I'm crying a little bit. Um, I think other people see it that way. But how do I see it? I see it as um, I see it as necessary. I see it as necessary, and I see it as innate to like me as a person. But also how I think we all need to be, event, you know, in our own ways. Because I think that's the only way. Like if I was to, and this probably where is my brain goes pop 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 you know all these things seem separate but they're all the same mm. uh, for me it's like actually fundamentally like um it is it goes back to what i was saying about you know damon's work and my work it's all about power and control like fundamentally that's that's kind of like the key thing here that's causing harm and trauma whether it's at a macro level in society or whether it's actually at a personal level in an intimate space it's about power and control. And so if we can break that within ourselves and find a way to actually be our, I guess, you know, vulnerability has got so much kind of like, you know, like people say vulnerability and stuff, but mm. like what's perceived as weakness, what's perceived as like something that maybe others will cast shame upon us for, we ourselves do that. That thing, that space, if we can hold that space and be in that space consistently, then we will find our truest path and we will be our truest selves. And I think that was the thing when everything broke, like when things broke in my grief with Nana and during the election and when I looked around and I was like, this is so false. You know, like not to take away from like ideology and politics, but I was like, this is so false. Like everybody here is selling out in one way or another. Doesn't matter whether they're left or right or whatever. Like these, these, we're all complicit. And so I started to see that. And then once it broke, then there was no turning back. And so it's living with your brokenness and and just like owning it, I suppose. And but also maybe loving it too in its own way loving it back into, like, existence and healing. Power and control, do you think we become more powerful as we relinquish more control? Yes, I think so. I, th I think so. I think we, we, as we give, as we give more up and we, because, like, so much of it I see as ego, you know, like, that's why I really struggle because I'm like, oh, self-promotion, like, with LinkedIn marketing and stuff, I'm always like, oh, like, so goes against the grain. But then I'm like, okay, if I don't push the narratives out there, then it doesn't create the lights that particularly for our young people on their journeys they need to see so that they can map their own star pathways. And so it's for me it's striking a balance. So, it is seeing ego because we all have it. And I see it as small ego, big ego. And so for me, it's definitely minimizing big ego <laughs> as much as possible. And also recognizing small ego. And so, you know, small ego is the one where, you know, you're in a conversation and then small ego is sitting on your shoulder going, it's that voice that goes, oh, you shouldn't have said that. Oh, you know oh, they're going to think this about you. Or, um, or you know, I often hear it where people apologise. They say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to say that. I was like, it's like, no, 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 no. You know, like that's small ego talking. Actually, let it go. Like as long as you can stand in your integrity and your values as a person, then those things will melt away. And I, I don't know whether it's we become more powerful, but I do think we just become more true. I was just thinking about that Bible verse, you know, um, oh man, I'm going to show my theology here, or lack of it. You know, something like, um, in your weakness, posting your weakness, because it highlights God's greatness uh, so off. But you know what I mean? It's that, it's that kind of thing that we're juggling. Actually, you know, when you give up control and when you relinquish your life in a Christian sense, then he has all power and control. And then, you know, you're walking out your purpose and you feel like kind of relinquished ego, and then that's a more freeing space. That that's my uh, spiritual journey is, is when I gave up my life. It was just 
freedom and yet freedom from the control I was trying to have and all the things that I was stuffing up in, man, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I know. I so hear you. Is that the thing that, you know, when people look at, probably if they look at my CV and they go, oh, wow, you know, blah, 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 success. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> me, I just look at it, I'm exhausted. That's how I feel, you know. I'm like, oh, I'm 38 and I'm exhausted. And I'm like, no, actually, like, I, I, I think I was, yeah, well, there's a lot of that was me just trying to figure stuff out as it yeah. was going. And but like, if I'm really honest, like what I really want, like if I could go back, I would give a lot of that up just to have more time with my nana. Mm. Yeah, and and then that's that you know that's the scarce resource. And I'm I'm exactly the same. Some of the things that I was doing, they look cool to my friends. They're like, oh man, you're traveling here and there. But the people knew who knew me really. They knew I was just running away. And you know, and you're trying to you try to run to something that looks cool because you haven't really dealt with anything, and um, yeah, it all came to a crash for me. But so you you also did that Fulbright in Hawaii. What was? Yeah, what and I was you... had morning sickness the whole time. <laughs> so so <with> Fulbright, <laughs> and I had my I, I was like, oh my gosh, it's just honestly, it was so crazy because I was I'm so I was so de- I think I was so determined my determination to prove, you know, what a mother and a woman could do regardless. And, you know, so I tried to take our daughter, Calais was three and a half. Um, And so, and so, and I was pregnant (laughs) and Shane was here working, trying to pay the bills Um, because if all right pays for your accommodation and you get a stipend, but otherwise you still have to pay the bills at home, you know? And honestly, oh, so after six weeks, it got so hard, I had to ask my husband to come up and get our daughter because wow. it was just too hard. Mm. Um, and I just think, oh, you know, again, like I'm like, oh, a good one, Leilani. <laughs> 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 like, but, you know, I, and I do say this, in the, and I say this with absolute, you know, truth, and, and this probably is the biggest truth, and I do believe it, is we do learn from our mistakes and they mm. are the things that ultimately they help us grow in ways that we oh we need sometimes we don't even know we need that growth so what were you writing about or what was the creative focus over in hawaii i wrote my second book cultural diplomacy uh which i did end up publishing self-publishing in the end because i just again i got i got sick of like the New Zealand publishing scene and like, you know, you kind of like, you've got your little cup and you're like, please, will you publish my book of poetry? And I'm good enough. And and the publisher who had published my first book, who was amazing. She at that time was having a baby herself. And so she'd wound down. And so, yeah, I was working on my book of poetry. Um, The research looked at Princess Kaiulani, who was the niece of Queen Liliokalani of Hawaii uh, and I was interested in her life and her experience. It was really sad and traumatic. And I, so my poetry was kind of informed by a lot of that. Okay. What was it about her life? Oh, so Kaiulani ended up spending a lot of her, um, so she was Scottish and Hawaiian um, by descent. And so she ended up spending a lot of her time away from Hawaii. Um, and she was at school in Scotland and England. And it just so happened that she was overseas when the coup in Hawaii occurred and her auntie was imprisoned. And so it was like trying to understand the trauma she experienced. And she wrote, she was like prolific. They were all prolific letter writers, but she wasn't particular. So I was really trying to be with her in that space as she had written some of those letters. But then also because I was in Hawaii, like just seeing how like, the grotesqueness of, of the imperial state in present-day Hawaii mm. and the militarized state, you know, the United States and its presence there, and the way it had kind of like sold Kaiulani's image in a really romanticized way. So, like, there's the Princess Kaiulani Hotel and, like, you know, a lot of the stuff you read about her was very much about that sort of romanticization that fed an imperial way of seeing the world and and I really wanted to understand how, how she actually felt and and was trying to navigate the space and in the end when she came back it was particularly hard and she she died very very young so there's this whole kind of 
tragedy around her life too, which I think fed the narrative. It was interesting. It was, and there's all sorts of really tricky spaces too, like being, because even though I'm Basifika, but not of obviously being an outsider still. Mm. So trying to navigate that space and have honest conversations there about how to do that with love and respect and, it actually in the end made me step even further back from that project focus because I felt like actually, no, this isn't my space. This isn't right. Wow. So you've been in, in various places in the Pacific through different roles. What do you reckon about the Pacific at the moment? Obviously the geopolitical thing that's going on with America and, and, um, and China. And then, um, you know, they're trying to come through. Australia's got the Pacific step up. You guys have got the reset. Uh, you've worked in MFAT and you had some time here at DFAT. You're in Tonga and Hawaii. You saw the militarization of that. What do you think about the region? How's, what, what do you think are the next steps in our region? And what do you think Pacific people, especially diaspora, um, should look out for? I think when I think about our region, I see that, you know, we've been consistent in terms of our collective desire to be self-determining and to have autonomy. But what I see is, yeah, those imperial interests remain, even if they're, you know, maybe spoken about in different ways, right? So whether it's in aid terms, development terms, or whether it's in economic terms to do with resources and rights. And I I think, unfortunately, if anything, that's only going to become more and more acute, particularly in the context of China's economic interests in the region. And I think nation states like Australia and New Zealand still have a really long way to go in terms of thinking about what genuine partnership means and also step back, create space, you know, like that's half the time that's just what needs to happen. And I think that also, as I was saying before, you know, my time in Tonga, that was part of that realisation too. Yeah, which is good. I learned that through that experience. And it's part of the reason for why in terms of my own career, I decided that actually in terms of a valid role for me to play as a Pacifica woman born in Aotearoa, the valid role was to help help apply my skills, knowledge and experience in public policy spaces to the benefit of our Pacifica peoples in this country. So a domestic interest for me was my driver in going back to government and doing the role I do. Yeah, that's a kind of like getting insight into what would you tell your 16-year-old self? My sixteen, oh my poor sixteen-year-old self. Oh gosh, just looking at her, just so heartbroken. Um, what does she look like? Well, she's terrible. She's a rebel. She smoked and did some drugs. She's <laughs> <laughs> um, really bad. Uh, so I, I would just say to her, I would say to her to write stories. That's what I would say to her. I would say to write stories, go to her writing, and I would say to read, read, read. Because I I think, you know, when I kind of think about that time and from when I got from there to where I probably was on the right-ish track, Mm. (laughs) uh, which was probably about the time I met Al, Al Went, um, and so I would have been about 21 I think it was the books and it was the writing that reset the course in the direction it needed to go. And I think it was meeting Al and his like, you know, listening to his laugh and dry humor. Whereas like, well, he's just human and he's a great storyteller. And actually maybe I could be a storyteller too. So good. And if, if you had a chance to invite three people to dinner, who would you invite? Oh my gosh. Um, Oh, okay. So I would invite, um, oh my gosh, just because I love her so much. Um, I would invite um, Sanoma Lee Karanina Sumil. She's our Equal Employment Opportunities Commissioner. Yeah, she's just so kick ass. Like, <laughs> I love listening to her speak and I love all the work she does. Um, I would invite oh okay just because like such a fangirl and because she always just knows what to say 
I would invite Carlo Mila. Um, And I would probably, who would I invite? Who else would I invite? I'd probably invite my daughter. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'd invite my daughter, Calais, because I'd want her to be there to listen, but also to shape the conversation. With Carlo Miller, what, what what kind of stories do you re- resonate with you from Carlo Miller? Oh, just about everything Carlo says yeah. <laughs> on Facebook and just like love, love, love. Carlo <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, just gets it, you know, like, and probably that's the thing, eh? Because Carlo and me are really similar in that kind of ec- academic mindset, yeah. political mindset, but also creative. You know, you can kind of see all the cross sections. Um, and yeah, just Carlo just sees it. And I think her Mana Moana work in particular, really exciting. It's groundbreaking. And a lot of people still don't even know, you know, I just don't think they realize actually what has happened is basically through her postdoc research. And now the program she's delivering, it's the epistemology of our ancestors it's like the ancient, you know, the world goes on about the knowledge of the ancient Greeks and like, you know, but it's actually like Carlo's work has pieced together across the whole Pacific, all the different proverbs, all the different superpower words that go back to 70 of our origin words that actually collectively resonate. And so for me, I'm just, I'm like, every time I hear about like I unpack mana moana more and more, I'm like, wow, it's just blowing my mind. And I think it's going to shape the trajectory of thinking. You know, I think Epele's work, mm. Epele Haofa's work for the last 20 years, and I think also Konai Halu Thaman's work for the last 20 years mm. has been absolutely instrumental from a research and theoretical perspective around shaping thinking. I think what Carlo's done now with Mana Moana has taken it to the next, next, next level and will set the trajectory for the next 100 years in terms of wow. Pacific scholarship. What a massive rap. That's awesome. For I don't really know much about Manawana, so can we find that somewhere? Or what is what is the project about? Oh, no, you just got to interview Carlo. That's the way to go. But if I was to sum it up, and I probably won't do it justice, so Carlo, forgive me. Um, but basically, so Carlo's master's thesis, so she interviewed like a 1,000 Pacifica young people to understand the underlying factors that were leading to self-harm and thoughts of suicide. And from that, she found, like, across the board, it was to do with identity. It didn't matter whether they came from, like, you know, first language speaking background, you know, like, it was so diverse and yet this consistent thing. So then in her postdoc, she thought, well, actually, that was really upsetting and depressing. What I'm going to do is I actually want to do something proactive about how to address this. So she started researching across the whole of the Pacific. She looked at, like, I think, Every single um, proverb that she could find from all the different island groups, I think, and particularly in Polynesia, um, where like there were consistent words that were used, and then from that she mapped seventy power words that were basically our root words. So, for example, alofa, aroha, aroha, ofa. You know, so this word it doesn't it takes a different form but has the same conceptual meaning and it's in all these proverbs and same with moana for example fenua and so she started to go okay so we have 70 words doesn't matter which language it's the same word in the proverbs actually what are our ancestors communicating to us and then she unpacked the meanings that our ancestors were translating so it's like wow what a body of work. Yeah, that's awesome. There's, there's a lot to that because even her master's, it sounds like, you know, the protective factor is identity and, and, and that's a really important. And that's a whole podcast in and of itself around self-harm but also around, you know, mental health and mental wealth as Levar's um, kind of framing it and, and things like that. I think that body of work there in New Zealand is so awesome and we're looking across the ocean and thinking, man, or looking across the sea, we're thinking, man, we need to catch up. Yeah, <laughs> which is you know the reason. So why. maybe you can come to dinner too. <laughs> yeah, please. If I, I'll, I'll serve it. I, I won't cook <laughs> it, but I'll serve it because I don't want to make you sick. But um, yeah, any other you know last pieces of advice for people who are listening in terms of their own journey? You know, and we know that you know uh, Pacific people have a lot to contribute. We've been blessed by God with so much talent. Um, 
and maybe some people are just sitting on the edge, not really jumping out. How can we, uh, any other advice for those people who are kind of thinking about jumping into their purpose or, you know, because one thing before you jump in, sorry, is what a conviction that you had in terms of the Tongan gig. You know, a lot of, you know, for you to quit that job is just conviction on values. And, um, you know, that's kind of what this podcast is about is you've got this talent, you've got this design. And so how do you get out there and fulfill it? I think like the main thing for me is there's no one right way. Hey, like there's no one right way. It's just about finding our own way. And I say our own way, because I do think it's our own way because we're all connected. And that's why, like, I know you and I have never met before, but I already connected to you. Right. Mm. Like, immediately because I'm like actually this is my brother like it, it's about real connection and understanding that actually for us as Pacifica we have been trying to find our own way for a very 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 long time you know for thousands of years and this is just another step in our ocean's journey and I think sometimes we're really hard on ourselves as I said I'm hard on myself of being way too hard and actually, if we just step back, just find our own way in our own time, at our own pace, and there's no one right way, if we trust that, actually, it's going to figure itself out. All right, there you have it, Leilani Tamu, a young woman with many lifetimes of experience and achievements of lessons and of stories, a woman who's comfortable being vulnerable um, because she seems dead set on telling the truth. And I think that Leilani is committed to telling the truth no matter how raw or detailed or hard it may be because it's the best way for her to function and for her to live out her life but also because she's seen how much society and systems are driven and shaped by ego and how much damage it does. Um, And I think Leilani is a real believer in the fact that the truth can set us free. Um, Right now with the Instagram of things or selling an image as opposed to telling the truth is really pervasive and Leilani knows that we as individuals can grow by being truthful and as a community we'll be more connected and happy if we just tell the truth and as she says uh, tell the truth with a lofa so that we can all learn from it and along the way we can reduce and hopefully eliminate the social performance we're all seemingly complicit in as she says. So um, Leilani and Shane and kids, congrats on all your achievements. We wish you all the best on the future um, and more specifically for your ramping down on things. I really appreciated that chat. Okay, well, um, I know I said this week Lani Rafiti, tech guru, would be up next, but my audio is stuffed up and he's been gracious enough to re-record that um, on Monday. And so I'll be bringing you his story next week. But until then, God bless and take care.